Today we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 22 and uh, looking at what we need to understand before we can appreciate grace, and that's the depravity of man. But uh, let's take a look, Acts 22, beginning to read at verse 22. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire that we would grow in light of it, shine your light in our lives, in our families, in our church, our culture, and help us to understand, uh, based on the light of your word, how we ought to respond. And I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to that end. Enable me to faithfully preach your word, and uh, we just want to worship you, love you, and glorify you in our responses to this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin once said, Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. Liberty is a well-armed lamb who is contesting the vote. <laughs> and uh, verse 22 gives a very vivid description of what could happen in a true democracy to minorities uh, and uh, it says this, they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Uh, last week, uh, somebody told me that we actually have the technology to be able to engage in a true democracy. He was actually kind of tongue-in-cheek talking about this, but he said, uh, we could have PDAs where everybody in the whole republic could be transmitting you know, new bills and ideas and everybody else could vote on these bills and we wouldn't really even need a, uh, a Senate or a Congress. We could be the legislators. Now, this is horrifying to me, this thought, but uh, anyway, we continued talking about this and uh, he said, just, just think about it. You know, you could um, introduce a bill and uh, we wouldn't need any government officials other than an executive office to enforce the will of the people. This was the idea that he, uh, that he had. Now, can you imagine 200 million legislators? I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> you know, voting and coming up with new legislation all the time. Actually, it probably wouldn't be 200 million because we got 300 million uh, citizens in the United States, I think, somewhere around there. But um, uh, what a stupid idea. <laughs> Apart from the ease of uh, voter fraud... 
Just think of what would happen entirely apart from voter fraud, even if the system was going to work. I think things would come to an absolute standstill within just a few days. For example, uh, you might come up with the brilliant idea, let's uh, introduce a bill to do away with property taxes. And I think nowadays that would be a pretty popular bill. I'd vote for it. Uh, a great bill. And uh, so you'd probably get that passed. But many of the people who would vote for that bill probably would have forgotten that two or three weeks before they had voted to increase the salaries of the public school teachers and 100% of those salaries come from the property taxes. And so when it's discovered that teachers are no longer getting their paychecks and they're going on strike, you've got 20 million parents who are outraged that their free babysitting has been taken away from them. So they instantly reintroduce a whole bunch of new legislation and the whole system comes crashing down. Maybe one bill might get through. And let's just say miraculously a bill gets through and they say, okay, we can't come to any consensus on what we should do here, but let's confiscate the wealth of the minorities and uh, that'll put the teachers back to work. Now, obviously just hypothetical there, but um, I think you get the point. Even if the system was feasible, there would eventually be idiotic bills that would have unintended consequences and you wouldn't even know what some of these consequences were and you wouldn't be able to control them unless you had an executive to impose some kind of order and control. But if you did that, you'd be moving away from pure uh, democracy and that's what always happens. Uh, there isn't been any time where they've been able to have pure democracy for very long at all. What happens is you tend to move away from democracy uh, to uh, some kind of a oligarchy or some kind of a dictatorship or something like that. Democracies provide no protection whatsoever for the 49% who happened to lose the vote five minutes ago, even if it was a vote that, um, you know, if they had a democracy back then in verse 22 where they say, away for, for such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Okay. Uh, you wouldn't be able to protect yourself from that. And there was no reason why a democracy uh, would not be able to do exactly that to 49% of the population. That's exactly what happened in Rwanda. It was a popular movement fanned by the flames of uh, radio uh, stations. We call that mobocracy. And what's going on in verse 22 is mobocracy. It really, even though it wasn't a form of government here, it's the most consistent form of democracy. And those who have experienced mobocracy are scared to death by it. And they immediately go to some heavy-handed ruler and they say, you've got to deliver us out of this mess that we're in. You've got to bring some law uh, and order uh, into this system. There's always a pendulum swing from democracy to either aristocracy or you know, oligarchy, which is the rule of um, a few elite. But we all knew, know what tyrants do. Tyrants like Mugabe and others. Yeah, they rescue you, just like this commander rescued Paul from the Romans. They can rescue you and deliver you from some things. But then they give arbitrary orders and commands, just like the one given in verse 24, a scourging of Paul. This commander was probably frustrated with Paul. Uh, he's given Paul a chance to calm the crowds down, and it seems like it has worked for a little while. But because he's speaking in Hebrew, the commander doesn't have the foggiest notion what Paul has been saying. And somehow, Paul has managed to rile up the crowds again. And uh, this is not making the commander too happy because he is responsible for maintaining law and order. He's got to maintain the status quo. 
And so uh, he's a little bit uh, upset with Paul. A few lashes is going to get information out of Paul as to what's going on. I think he's probably thinking in his mind, I have no idea what's going on uh, with Paul or what he said, but this guy's given me a headache, scourging. Okay, it's an arbitrary command. And those who have actually survived a scourging, if you've ever studied what scourging is like, it's horrible, uh, they uh, end up despising the tyranny of a dictatorship or the tyranny of an oligarchy or the tyranny even of, an, uh, of, a, of a republic that is not restrained. Uh, you can suffer under centralized government. You can suffer under mobocracy. Now, let me just describe this uh, scourge um, uh, for a little bit. The Roman scourge was a very fearful uh, instrument. It was... Um, made up of several strands of uh, leather with bits of sharp metal at the end. And when that thing whipped across your back or sometimes went across to the front, uh, it would stick into the flesh, sometimes just take chunks of flesh right off of the bones. It was a horrible instrument of torture. Sometimes it led to death. And so we see in this chapter that mobs can give injustice. They're trying to beat Paul to death. And we see civil government can give injustice. And this is why our founding fathers didn't like democracy and they didn't like any kind of an unrestrained government. They established a very limited republic, not a democracy. Their view of human nature was total depravity. We're not just talking about the Christians. Even the non-Christians uh, believed in uh, total depravity. And uh, <clears throat> they were so pessimistic about human nature that if you read their writings, uh, they said we need to restrain the crowds because they saw the tyranny that happened when crowds did, for example, tarring and feathering. Uh, it just sickened some of these guys. Horrible torture, hot tar poured over this guy and they can't get it off, or lynchings. They wanted to restrain the depravity of the crowds, but they also wanted to restrain the depravity of civic officers because they had seen the incredible abuses that civic officers had uh, inflicted upon the population as well. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at eight tools of resistance. And the first thing we see in this passage is that Paul was willing to bring a prophetic witness against his culture. He spoke up. Verse 22, and they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. It's obviously an unpopular message. But Paul is willing to bring an unpopular message to his culture because he fears God more than he fears man, and he loves the truth more than he loves his own comfort. And if our desire is simply comfort and to get along and just to have peace and just leave me alone, what we're going to do is we're going to put up with more and more tyranny in government and more and more evils in the culture all around us. We've got to speak up. Now, Paul did not speak up here to protect himself. He's already protected. He's already been taken out of the uh, by the Romans out of the, the, the mob's hands. So why does he speak up? Well, I believe it is because Paul has a passion to see Christ's kingdom advanced, to see Christ's truths, His word, His grace, His gospel advanced. He has to speak. Uh, he feels this holy compulsion to speak, and it was a similar passion among America's founding fathers that made them speak up uh, about injustice. Patrick Henry spoke against injustice regardless of the outcome. He was a lawyer. He defended people in court, even when it seemed like it was not going to 
uh, be a, a very hopeful cause. And so he was willing to stand alone to see American liberties defended. Uh, by the way, uh, of all of the American early American patriots, he was by far my favorite. He, he, he understood the Bible. He understood how to apply it. He, he, he knew the truth. He loved the truth. He wanted to, to speak it to others. And uh, I would encourage you to get his collected uh, writings. Very clear-sighted, very bold and courageous man. But let me quote from Sam Ab Adams, who was another patriot, uh, one of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention and later the governor of Massachusetts. He said this to those who wanted peace at any price. If you love wealth more than liberty, the tranquility of servitude better than the animating contest of freedom, depart from us in peace. We ask not your counsel nor your arms. Crouch down and lick the hands that feed you. May your chains rest lightly upon you and may posterity forget that you were our countrymen. Okay, that was a man who, like Paul, was bringing a prophetic testimony against his peers who just were not willing to act. Speaking an unpopular message is not an option if we are to restore liberties in America once again. And really, I'm sick and tired of politicians and preachers who are not willing to, you know, let people know what they really think. We need men who hold up a banner you can get excited about that you can rally around, that you can say, yes, that's exactly what I want. I, people, I think, would admire such courage. They would admire such boldness. We need men who inspire us in that way. And if we can't find any, maybe God is calling some of you to run for office. And um, in any case, whether, that, whether He calls you to office or not, all of us need to speak out. We must not fear the cries of our neighbors in verse 22 or the punishment of tyrants in verse 24. You see, without Jonah... Nineveh would not repent. Without Daniel's coming into cultures, Nebuchadnezzar's will not repent. Without Paul's preaching, empires like Rome are not going to crumble to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, they did crumble. In the last chapter, we're seeing the beginnings of that crumbling as even members of Caesar's household and of the Praetorian Guard come to a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask this question, am I willing to bring a prophetic witness against our culture? Now, we're going to see it in a moment. We've got to do it in a very gentle, kind, and loving way. Uh, we, we, we saw before that uh, it, uh, it should not be a situation of sinners in the hands of an angry church, right? Uh, they need to see the good side of us, and, uh, and that is important. Okay, the second thing that must be in place is realism about depravity. Now, let me define depravity briefly. Depravity means that man's nature is so tainted by sin that apart from grace and apart from other restraints that God has put in place in this world, men are going to automatically sin worse and worse. Okay? They don't always show it because there are restraints and because of God's common grace and His special grace, but depravity means that our being is so tainted by sin, we are automatically going to get worse and worse apart from those restraints. And so, many of the political solutions and the citizen solutions that come up today assume the exact opposite. They assume man's basically reasonable, he's not depraved, he's basically good. Even conservatives many times think this way. Uh, you think of a conservative like Welch, uh, founder of the John Birch Society, and you see his solution was education. 
Now, education is important. We all believe in education, but he thought if we could only educate the citizens of America, then, you know, everything's going to be resolved. Well, that's not true because men, women, and children are constantly rebelling against the truth that God has established in their hearts. Education is not our Savior. Jesus is. And I think that's important. But look at the depravity that's painted in verses 22 through 23. And keep in mind, these are honest, upright citizens. You know, you'd never have expected this kind of behavior out of them. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air. These guys are showing no restraint. And as a result, their sinful hearts are exposed. Now, there are a number of things that can remove such restraints and cause civil people to no longer be civil. Mobs do it because when you're in a mob, there is this strong sense of peer pressure pressuring you to do what everybody else is doing. But the exact opposite, uh, if you don't have peer pressure, sometimes that can remove restraints as well. For example, just think of a person who watches pornography when he's by himself that he would never dare to watch when he is around other people. You see, when accountability is removed, that's another restraint that can unleash the floodgates of depravity. Government sanction of evil is another thing that can remove such restraint. Romans 1 and 2 talks about that. Other people accusing, their conscience is accusing you or excusing you. But in America... One of the reasons why homosexuality and abortion has become acceptable in most circles is because it's been made to be legal. One of the restraints has been removed. Nowadays, there are some conservatives who are so focused upon the abuses of the civil magistrate in verse 24 that they want to get rid of government. They say, if we could only completely get rid of civil government, we wouldn't have any problems. Well... There were parts of the Wild West that I would not have wanted to experience. And the reason for it is because there was no restraint of the passions of mobs or of individuals or of wild Indians. Now, we've got to think about these kinds of things. Point two says, don't idealize the anarchist or radical libertarian viewpoint. Realize that depravity can make mobs capable of anything. Now, Murray Rothbard has popularized... Uh, anarchism, which believes in no government. It's not rioting. Don't think of anarchism that way. He just believes no government. That is naive once you understand the doctrine of total depravity. Alexander Hamilton, one of the writers of our Constitution, said, Why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. Paul would be a dead man at this point if it was not for the constraint of this Roman garrison who came to rescue him. Okay? Libertarianism and anarchism fail the doctrinal test of depravity. They're naive, they're unworkable. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have some good things to say. One of my favorite books is by... Murray Rothbard, um, Man, Economy, and the State, a massive book on economics. But uh, even though he's got a number of biblical principles, he's not a Christian himself, a number of good axioms that he starts with, he's introduced some non-biblical axioms that lead to faulty conclusions, to anarchism. If he had in, uh, brought into, as one of his starting premises, depravity, I think that would have been a hugely improved book. Okay? It, would have been a, it would have been a great uh, great book. Point three tells us don't go to the other extreme. 
While verse 24 indicates that we need to have a strong enough civil government to restrain the passions of mobocracy, the government too can be equally unjust. Don't put your trust in either. As Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. I don't trust, um, you know, the sovereign government any more than I trust the so-called sovereign individual. Okay, Both are depraved. You can only put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's true, this commander did rescue Paul from the Jews, but look at the torture that he plans to inflict upon Paul here. And as we read this, I want you to think about the torture that Americans have inflicted upon their detainees to extract information. Verse 24, The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Now, this is an injustice. The commander doesn't know if Paul is guilty or not. The only thing he cares about, he wants information. He wants to maintain control. He wants peace. And he wants to defend the status quo. Okay, that's what he's really interested in. Magistrates generally are more interested in defending the status quo than they are in justice. Anything that interferes with that can become the enemy of the state, whether it's Christianity or humanism. Don't just think it's Christianity. Humanism can be an enemy of the state if it's doing one of two things. If it's attacking the status quo that the government wants to maintain, or it's holding back the progress that the government wants to uh, be advancing. Benjamin Rush, another one of our America's founding fathers, said, Absolute power should never be trusted to man. It has perverted the wisest heads and corrupted the best hearts in the world. Now, recent presidents have wanted more and more power to be given to them so that they can deal with dangers of terrorism. Uh, that's government asking for the power of verse 24 so that they can deal with the power of verse 22. And you see that? That's exactly what's happening. Let me ask you, which is more scary? A private terrorist with very limited power or a, um, a government that has almost unlimited power uh, bringing terror to people? I'd much rather have to deal with the private terrorist because at least you got a chance, you know, of defending yourself. Now, mobs are a little bit more scary, but even they respond to force, uh, shotguns and things like that. Uh, they can be much more scary. Governments don't respond to that kind of force, do they? They do not. And it's insanity to trust the federal government with ever-increasing measures of power and intrusions into pi um, privacy. It is to ignore the doctrine of depravity. Now, let's just talk about torture for a moment. It has been illegal in America to engage in torture from the founding of our nation uh, to uh, present times until just recent times, and it is certainly unbiblical. It is grossly unbiblical, and I can share later with you some of the scriptures, but it's unbiblical to use torture to extract information from anyone. No one even has to testify, well, no matter what the pressure, even psychological pressure, they did not have to testify against themselves. And yet many conservatives have ignored the Geneva Convention, the Constitution, historic law, and the Bible itself in their so-called fight against terrorism. I've read uh, the, the Red Cross uh, documents and the employee uh, corroborations of uh, some of the torture 
uh, using beatings and suffocation and hypothermia and sleep deprivation and a number of other things, trying to extract information from these people is absolutely sickening. It is sickening, and it amazes me that we have entrusted to the CIA and to uh, other agencies the degree of power and control that they have. I hope that you have all been opponents of the Patriot Act and policies on torture and invasions of privacy that have risen to new heights in recent decades because giving the government that much power fails the doctrinal test of depravity. It does. It fails. The, it, we cannot put that much trust in man. Point four shows another way to have godly opposition to injustice, appeal to higher laws. Verse 25, And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Now, Paul knows the answer. He's not asking for information. It's a rhetorical question. He's just being polite. Okay, He's being careful on how he answers. But it's a powerful question that he's asking because Paul is appealing to two higher Roman laws known as the Lex Porcia and the Lex Julia. Those laws indicated that no Roman could ever be bound or scourged until there was a trial in which he was proven guilty. Okay? So the, 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 there was definitely protection. Now Nero, uh, just within one or two years of this writing here, he begins to ignore these uh, two laws. But at this stage, they know these laws are in force and these soldiers, they back off. They're scared of uh, what is going on here. Uh, every soldier in the scourging could have gotten into deep trouble. So there's a higher law that protects Romans. And this is the genius of the Constitution. It was designed to restrict the government and protect citizens. But let me tell you something. It only acts as a restriction if you appeal to it. Okay? If Paul did not appeal to the higher law, he would have gotten his scourging. And this is why I keep encouraging people, you've got to read the Constitution. It's a higher law. This is a pagan law that he's appealing to. So whether you like the Constitution or you don't, you need to understand it because it is one of those restrictions that can hold a government in place. And we need to keep asking our politicians, is it lawful for you to be doing such and such? And when he assures you, oh, yes, it is, you need to know the Constitution well enough that you can discuss it with him and say, well, actually, I really don't think it is lawful to be doing that. Could you discuss this portion of the Constitution with me and, uh, and, and see if you can make some progress? Now, let me talk about how our Constitution understood the doctrine of depravity. Listen to the distrust of government shown in the preamble to the Bill of Rights. The conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added. Okay, the Bill of Rights was very pessimistic about man's nature and almost all of the founding fathers were just as pessimistic. There were some exceptions, but almost all of them were. Kentucky Resolution said it very well. Confidence in the men of our choice is everywhere the parent of despotism. In other words, if you put too much trust in government, he says, you're going to get tyrants. You can't put too much trust. So he says, um, confidence in the men of our choice is everywhere the parent of despotism. Free government is founded on jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence which prescribes limited constitutions to bind down those whom we are obliged to trust with power. 
In questions of power, then, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Lord uh, Bryce said much the same. He said, Someone has said that the American government and Constitution are based on the theology of Calvin and the philosophy of Hobbes. Let me just stop there for a moment. Hobbes was a secularist uh, who had a very, very pessimistic view of man. Yeah, you're laughing because you, Calvin and Hobbes' cartoon strip, if you, if you read what he wrote, he said that's where he got the name for his thing. The two most pessimistic people about human nature, John Calvin and, and Hobbes. But uh, anyway, here it says that... that um, Uh, Someone has said that the American government and constitution are based on the theology of Calvin and the philosophy of Hobbes. This at least is true, that there is a hearty puritanism in the view of human nature which pervades the instrument of 1787. It is the work of men who believed in original sin and were resolved to leave open for transgressors no door which they could possibly shut. The aim of the Constitution seems to be not so much to attain great common ends by securing a good government as to avert the evils which will flow not merely from a bad government but from any government strong enough to threaten the pre-existing communities of the individual system, a citizen. So if trusting our civil government with ever-increasing power to deal with terrorism does not bother you, you think, what's the big deal you need to get a healthy dose of Puritan theology on depravity. You need to study a book on the doctrine of depravity, and it will scare you to death if you do. It pervaded the discussions of the Constitutional Convention, and they saw the Constitution as a restricting document, and they saw the Bill of Rights as a bill of restrictions. Our Constitution has almost been totally lost in America. Even Christians don't read it. They don't understand it. But I think there's still hope of getting this Constitution back if we'll discuss it with people and spread it and and talk about it. Appeal to it, just like Paul appealed to higher law in his own day. The fifth tool at our disposal is given in verse 26. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Paul appealed to a centurion who in turn warned his superior that what he had commanded was not a lawful command. This is just one of many forms of interposition. Uh, Let me define that. Black's Law Dictionary, 4th edition, defines interposition this way. The doctrine that a state in the exercise of its sovereignty may reject a mandate of the federal government deemed to be unconstitutional or to exceed the powers delegated to the federal government. Uh, Other definitions of this include lower magistrates like this one here, but there have been lawyers, judges, juries, county sheriffs, county commissioners, city councilmen, city mayors, city police, state governors, state legislators, state electors, national guards, and army officers who have risked their necks and risked their careers in order to protect justice. Now, some have been successful, and there are some wonderful stories of interposition in America, and some have not been successful, but I consider even the failures to be a success because these were magistrates who were trying to do their duty. We leave the the outcome in God's hands. By the way, even churches can be involved in interposition. From the time of Ambrose on, Ambrose was a church father who lived in the the late uh, 300s. From the time of Ambrose on, churches used uh, church discipline to bring unruly tyrants 
into, into place. People who were engaging in, in murder and pillaging and, and other crimes. And they said, look, if you don't repent of this and stop this, you are going to be excommunicated. And yet in, in Omaha, we can't even get churches to excommunicate abortionists who are in their midst, let alone to excommunicate and discipline uh, uh, politicians who are engaging in uh, great unlawful activity. And if you want to study a little bit more about interposition, I encourage you to jo join Judge Roy Moore's uh, group. The sixth tool that Paul uses is reasoning and communication that bureaucrats can understand or at least information that they care about. Look at verses 27 through 28. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? Obviously, this news really got his attention. This is information he's really interested in. Are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Now, there's a number of things I want to talk about here, but I want you to, first of all, notice the calmness with which Paul speaks to these people. This was not language intended to enrage and anger the commander. That would not have been very clever to do on Paul's part. You get these guys mad enough, they might just kill him. Now, he's trying to win this commander to his position, and so he's polite. And I think if we use the kind of graciousness that Paul does throughout this book, uh, with maybe one exception in the next chapter that we'll look at, I think uh, we'll, we'll be much further ahead. Okay, Paul brings this commander to realize that it's really in his best interests to treat Paul well. Government officials, some of them care about your interests, but many of them, they don't care about your interests. And so what does Paul do? He knows that. He knows human nature. So he's appealing to their interests. He's showing this is really in your best interests to not do this to me. So let me explain what was going on. Obviously, this Roman uh, commander had newly acquired his citizenship and the rights that went with that. There were a lot of rights that Romans had that other people did not have, and he paid a huge sum of money in order to get this, uh, to get this right. Uh, you'll notice his name is Claudius, and um, uh, we uh, commentators say he must have just very recently gotten this during the reign of Claudius, who died in 54 A.D. And so probably what's happened, the patron, you take on the name of your patron. Well, was, is it really a patron when you're paying them to get the money? Well, however it is, you take on the name of that person. A lot of people considered this to be not very ethical, not a good thing to do, a kind of a, a form of corruption. But in any case, we know that this guy probably did not have a lot of roots, a lot of connections with other uh, uh, citizen relatives and things like that. He just had obtained his bare citizenship. And then the commander, he's astonished that this scrawny, battered man in front of him claims to be a citizen. He paid a lot of money for this. This guy doesn't look very rich. He doesn't look Roman, and if he's a Jew, he'd have to be rich to be able to buy his citizenship. That's what's going through his mind. So he's wondering, what is going on here? This is inconceivable to him. Well, Paul says he hadn't purchased it. He says, I was born a citizen. That's even more astonishing. So Paul must have come from a very well-to-do and very influential and powerful and well-connected family in Tarsus. It was only recently that purchasing citizenship would have even been possible, but Paul has not been a citizen recently. He's pretty old now. If he was born a citizen, that meant his parents were citizens. That meant that this goes way back, which commentators say Paul must have been born into a family that had somehow 
benefited the empire and to such a degree that they say, we're going to make you a citizen. We're going to, we're going to grant this uh, to you. Now, that means Paul's family is very well connected. They're important in the empire. And you can see then why these guys are suddenly very fearful, uh, just apart from his uh, citizenship. Now, we did mention before, Paul probably, when he became a Christian, had his family disown him, disinherit him. He didn't volunteer that information here. That's not going to be helpful to his argument. Uh, he just gives the bare bones, I am a citizen, okay, uh, just enough to win uh, the officer over to himself. And we need to learn how to reason with government officials in ways that will not alienate them. Uh, we need to be thinking, what are their interests? And how will their interests align with biblical interests? Now, it's true in chapter 23, he gets really mad when somebody slaps him against the law. And, uh, and yet he, he reverts to his principle that a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Much better to win an adversary than to humiliate him. Seventh tool for resisting tyranny is to realize all government officials or all government bureaucrats tend to fear something. Some fear their wives. Uh, some <laughs> fear public opinion or shame or a fear exposure. And in this case, it was fear of repercussions from above. Verse 29. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. His soldiers didn't want to have anything more to do with this. I mean, they're back and way off from Paul. It's like, we're not a part of this mess at all. And even if this commander had insisted, you're going to beat Paul, they had a right to refuse. They could have refused. Uh, they were nervous about it, and the commander's nervous because look at all of these witnesses of what they have done unlawfully. Okay, well, here's the, the application that I make uh, for, for that. In bureaucracies, officials advance by following the rules. And if you know the rules of a bureaucracy, you can sometimes slow down injustice or even advance true justice. And this is the premise that Dan Pella uses in his books for taking on the IRS. He simply uses the IRS rules to stymie the IRS. And he's very, very effective at doing that. If you want a tongue-in-cheek uh, look at how bureaucracies work, you don't have to really read a technical journal on it. Just read the Dilbert uh, cartoon, and uh, it's got um, uh, some, some truth in it. Some of it's a little bit uh, far, but all bureaucrats fear something. Know what it is, and you can leverage it. Last tool for resisting injustice is to make the most of the court system. Verse 30, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Uh, Paul is going to have some fun with this court on uh, uh, this uh, next chapter. And I'm looking forward to, to preaching on that. But when I speak of this as being a tool for advancing justice, I am not saying that judges are not subject to the problem of total depravity. We're going to see a whole lot of depravity in the next chapter. That's not the point. It's just another check and balance that God has put in place of depraved people slowing down the work of other depraved people. Okay, um, they've got their own self-interest. And actually, this is one of the things that makes the free market work so brilliantly. Uh, where it doesn't work under socialism because some of these restraints are removed. In order for one pagan to profit at the expense of another pagan, he's got to restrain his depravity. 
Okay, so he's in some senses serving himself, but he's got to serve the interests of others and he has to restrain his depravity in order to do that. And so these are just various ways in which God slows down evil uh, in society. Praise Jesus. I mean, these things are set in place, you know, they're great things we can count on. It's sort of the, the Tower of Babel syndrome where the humanists have a hard time getting along. Why? Because they're depraved, right? And I could just see God up in heaven smiling and, and, and telling the angel, hey, hey, look what's going to happen next over here, you know, as things come to a total stalemate in the next chapter. And so what's happened? In these chapters, God has used ungodly government to stop the injustice of individuals and mobs. And of course, they don't know that they're serving justice. They think they're serving their own uh, self-interest. In fact, I'm convinced, uh, based on the evidence I've looked at, that this uh, Roman centurion, the only reason he ran in there, risked his neck, this is a pretty dangerous thing for him to do, only reason he ran in there, he thought he was the Egyptian who had escaped, who was high on the wanted list, and he said, yay, this is another way that I can advance uh, in, 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 in my career. It was self-interest, and yet God used it, didn't he? He used that. Then God uses the rules of an ungodly government to stop the injustice of a lower branch of the same ungodly uh, government, and he uses an even lower magistrate to interpose himself between Paul and a higher magistrate. And then he gets this commander uh, desiring to please these Jews because he wants peace to say, okay, we've got to involve the Jewish courts. And he takes them into the Jewish courts, but then he uses the two Jewish factions within those courts to fight against each other so that the ball gets thrown back into the Roman court. And God is in total control this whole time. And he continues to be in control of mobs as well as of governments. Just because we have a pessimistic view of depravity does not mean we have to be pessimistic. Our God can use all of these things for the advancement of His kingdom. Amen? So let's not be discouraged uh, by this stuff. Uh, but it's also important to realize Paul was not a pawn. He's got a free will and he makes the most of it. He's using these tools uh, to try to take control of the situation. And this whole section in Acts chapter 22 gives us just a little bit of a biblical philosophy of civics. Since the 16th century, Calvinists have pointed out your view of the gospel shapes your view of culture and civics. In fact, uh, we looked at the five solas and the sovereignty of God and all kinds of things yesterday and showed what difference does the gospel make in economics, in culture, and other things like that. That was one of the things at the conference that I was uh, teaching yesterday. Today, we're just focused on, on, on depravity. But let's just, um, let's just consider depravity and the courts. This is our last point here, depravity and the courts. We looked at the other branches. Here's what Thomas Jefferson said about the courts. The opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and what not would make the judiciary a despotic branch. To consider the judges as the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions is a very dangerous doctrine indeed and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal. He was horrified to see the increasing power that was being grabbed by the judiciary and he said this, We already see the judiciary power installed for life, responsible to no authority, advancing with a noiseless and steady pace to the great object of consolidation. The foundations are already deeply laid by their decisions for the annihilation of constitutional state rights and the removal of every check, every counterpoise to the engulfing power of which themselves are to make a sovereign power. He saw exactly what was, going, what was happening. He saw exactly what 
has happened to us. He said, this is, this is inevitable. In another place, he said, it has long been my opinion, and I've never shrunk from its expression, that the germ of disillusion of our federal government is in the constitution of the federal judiciary, an irresponsible body working like gravity by night and by day, gaining a little today and a little tomorrow, and advancing its noiseless step like a thief over the field of jurisdiction until all shall be usurped from the states and the government be consolidated into, into one. To this I am opposed. And we too need to be opposed to this with everything that is in our power. Now we may not have much power. We don't, really. But Paul didn't have much power either, did he? He did what he could and he left the results in God's sovereign hands. But he did seek to make a difference. And I think our founding fathers in America would roll over the graves, metaphorically, if they knew how bad things have gotten uh, within the judiciary. It looks as bad today as the Jewish Sanhedrin looked in Acts chapter 23. And so if you have any illusions of natural goodness of judges, I think your illusions will be set to rest if you read just a few hundred pages of judicial decisions that have happened over the past 15 years. Uh, it has just begun to get insane. Michael Paulson, university chair and professor at University of St. Thomas School of Law, said this, The decision in Casey, that was back in 1992, the decision in Casey reaffirming Roe and itself reaffirmed and extended in Carhart, in my view, and Carhart was the abortionist here uh, in, um, in Nebraska, he says, in my view, exposes the Supreme Court as currently constituted as a lawless, rogue institution capable of the most monstrous of injustices in the name of law with a smugness and arrogance worthy of the worst totalitarian dictatorships of all time. The court, as it stands today, has with its abortion decisions forfeited its legal and moral legitimacy as an institution. It has forfeited its claimed authority to speak for the Constitution. It has forfeited its entitlement to have its decisions respected and followed by the other branches of government, by the states and by the people. The enthusiasm of liberal intelligentsia for the court's abortion decisions, the psychophancy of the law professorate, of the legal profession and of our elected officials, and the docility of the American people with respect to our lawless authoritarian court rivals the pliancy of the most cowardly, servile peoples toward ruinous, brutal, anti-democratic regimes throughout the world history. We suffer people to commit despicable acts of private violence and we welcome. Some of us revere a regime that destroys popular government for the sake of perverted Orwellian notions of liberty. After a 20th century that saw some of the worst barbarisms and atrocities ever committed by humankind, at a time when humankind supposedly had progressed to more enlightened states, we still have not learned. The lesson of the Holocaust, never forget, is lost. We fail to recognize the amazing capacity of human beings to commit unthinkable, barbaric evil and of others to tolerate it. We remember and are aghast at the atrocities of others committed in the past or in distant lands today, but we do not even recognize the similar atrocities that we ourselves commit and tolerate today. What an indictment of our current generation. And I think it is time that the pulpits of America wake up and that the people of America wake up. There may come a time when I am put in jail for preaching the scriptures that I've preached today and applying them in the way in which I have applied them today. But rather than getting 
discouraged over such a possibility, it should make us realize that the ultimate solution is not in governments, it is not in citizens, it is not in minutemen, it's not in any of these things. The ultimate solution is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we've got to go. That's the only solution. Do not put your trust in princes. Do not put your trust in man. Do not trust in revolution. Look to Scripture for your plan. Many years ago, R.J. Rushdoony said, not revolution, but regeneration is the Christian hope for man and society. And this is why Paul preached the gospel every chance that he could. He knew it was not revolution, it was regeneration that would have any hope of Rome crumbling to the gospel. And Rome did crumble to the gospel. It became a thoroughly Christian uh, culture and nation at some point, and some countries more than others, but it did so because there were hundreds of thousands of Christians who were willing to preach the truths of the Scripture, preach the gospel, live the gospel, and seek to be consistent in applying doctrine to life. Uh, one of Rush Dooney's books, um, Foundations of Social Order, showed how these guys really were clear thinking on how the doctrines of the Trinity and the doctrines of the, the deity and humanity of Christ and the sovereignty of God meant limited sovereignty. They applied these things to all of life. We've learned how to abstract doctrine and make it useless. We've got to take doctrine and apply it to life. We've got to apply it to every sphere of culture. Now, the tools for resistance to injustice that we've looked at this morning, they're important tools. I'm not saying they're not important, but they are not the ultimate solution. They're only stopgap measures. The story does not end in chapter 22. What it does is it goes on and it shows how people fearlessly were willing to lay down their lives for King Jesus to advance His cause. They believed the gospel. They lived out the gospel. And they saw this gospel permeating throughout uh, Roman society and making a difference. Only the restored gospel of the Reformation has any hope of restoring America. And if God in His mercy says, yes, I'm going to bring another Reformation... Let me tell you something, nothing will be able to stop the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray for another reformation to God's glory. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Help us to understand it and how to apply it. And Father, may You be glorified in the things that we do. Father, it's so easy for us to go to extremes, to, uh, to see evil all around us and then begin to uh, just want to withdraw and, and be so upset with the evil that we can't interact with it in a loving, gracious way. And so we pray that You would give us Calvary love, the kind of love that can forgive those, uh, even as Christ forgave those who crucified Him, that can forgive uh, those, uh, if Paul forgave those who in previous chapters had beaten Him and abused Him. Uh, help us, Father, to never become bitter to never become overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. May we live out the gospel so powerfully that even though we have our eyes open to see depravity all around us, that we're not overcome, we're not overwhelmed by that, but we're encouraged by the sovereign grace that flows from Your throne. Father, we trust in Your grace. It is able to conquer America. It is able to conquer our own hearts. And so we come to You and we say, Lord, Cause Your mighty warrior angels to go forth in doing battle and scattering the forces of darkness that are all around us. And cause Your people to wake up to become a mighty spiritual army in advancing the cause of King Jesus. We love You and we love Your kingdom and we love Your cause and we want to be committed to Your cause. And we pray to that end that You would fill us 
and anoint us and empower us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.